Today's message originated in the pulpit of Covenant Community Church by lead pastor Alan Ellis. Covenant Community Church lives to glorify Christ by making disciples who are growing in relationship with God in worship, then with the church in fellowship, and with the world in witness. Now, here's today's message. Uh, we've taken the last uh, four Sundays or so talking about uh, David being out but ascending. That's a story as we've covered it in quite a bit of detail in the 16th chapter of the book of Second Samuel where Absalom's coming to town and David decides to get out of Dodge. And We looked at some lessons that we could learn from that. Uh, but now we continue into the uh, 17th, excuse me, that, that was in the 15th chapter. Now we continue into the 16th chapter of uh, the book of Second Samuel. Uh, David has decided, as, as I said, to, to get out of Jerusalem, um, and he is taking what has been an, uh, what is an ancient path or of exit out of Jerusalem, out the east side of the city, down into the valley, Kidron Valley, across the brook Kidron, up the slope of the Mount of Olives. And uh, if you were listening uh, carefully this morning, you'll see if you look in Second uh, Samuel 16, verse 5, uh, when King David came to Bahurim. Um, Bahurim is... A, a village east of Jerusalem, of course, we w- would expect that. And it's on the road to uh, Jordan, or the Transjordan, on the road to Jericho. And it's just a little bit east on the downward slope of the Mount of Olives. So the geography, uh, if you're going to travel from Jerusalem to Jericho, and Jesus gives us that story about uh, we know it as the parable of the Good Samaritan. The man was making, uh, was was going from uh, Jerusalem down to Jericho, and and that's important because uh, Jericho is down at the level of sits by the entrance of the Jordan River into the the Dead Sea, and so when you get to the top of the Mount of Olives, you begin this descent. Uh, which by bus takes about uh, 45 minutes or so. Uh, but it's a, a change in terrain. Jerusalem compared to the terrain it's, uh, going down to Jericho is like a lush and verdant uh, garden, but going down to Jericho, you begin to get more of the Arabah, what we know as Arabia or the desert of Arabia. So we've followed uh, David on this journey, this exodus out of Jerusalem, up to the top of uh, the Mount of Olives, where there was another place of worship. And now he begins his descent uh, down towards Jericho and eventually crossing the Jordan River and out into the wilderness. So there are two instances that take place in this passage, if you listen closely. One 
The first instance is an instance of blessing. Ziba, who is Mephibosheth's servant, he was originally Saul's servant. Mephibosheth was the physically crippled child of Saul, and he was the only surviving relative of Saul's household. David had been kind to him, invited him to the palace, invited him even to eat at his table. The Bible says that every day of his life there was a a placemat set for uh, Mephibosheth at at David's table. Uh, David could have been uh, even more bloodthirsty than he was, and and he could have said, "Well, he he might be a rival to my uh, king kingship, so the best thing to do would be just to kill him." But David uh, specifically asks, "Are there any relatives that survive from the house of Saul?" And the answer came back, "Well, Mephibosheth. Well, he's not much of a threat." Um, he's physically handicapped. I don't think he can do you any harm. I'm sure some of the advisors were telling David. And so David directs Ziba, who was Saul's uh, servant. We, we would call them today an administrator or a financial consultant or a manager. And he, he tells Ziba, you are going to be Mephibosheth's servant now. You're going to serve Mephibosheth. And uh, Ziba agrees with this. Now, this is interesting. There's an interesting turn of events here. We've all heard the phrase, don't bite the hand that feeds you. And this is exactly what Mephibosheth ends up doing. Mephibosheth, what a strange name, right? Mephibosheth decides, we could just call him M. M decides that he's going to stay in Jerusalem. And in this conversation that David has with uh, Ziba, um, Ziba, of course, is bearing gifts of food because as David's entourage has made its exodus out of the city, down into the valley, across the brook Kidron, up the, up the uh, western slope of the Mount of Olives, they are hungry and tired and exhausted and Thirsty. They're running for their lives, basically. And Ziba loads up the donkeys, uh, loads up the, the Acura or Lexus of the day with all sorts of food stuff, and comes and greets David and says, Here, I brought you food and wine uh, that you can refresh yourselves uh, in your journey. And David asks the question, Where is your. Um, well, if you look at it, look, look in uh, verse 3 of chapter 16. And the king said, where is your master's son? He's referring here to Saul. Where is your master, meaning Saul, where is Saul's son, specifically referring to Mephibosheth? In other words, Mephibosheth's servant has shown up, but there's no sign of Mephibosheth. Of course, in David's precarious position, He is smelling betrayal here. And Ziba says to David, 
Remember, David has a whole entourage. There, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people with him. Many of them vicious men of war that we see in the next instance with uh, the cursing of Shimei. And Ziba has to be very, uh, Ziba has to be very uh, diplomatic here. He says, well, uh, Mephibosheth, my, my master, my immediate master has stayed in Jerusalem and he told me that today uh, his, his rights to the kingdom, to be the, 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 the next successor in line out of Saul's household, that today the kingdom Israel will be restored to him. And so David then immediately knew that Mephibosheth had betrayed him. Uh, Ziba uh, declares his allegiance to David. David says, everything that uh, you were master over, everything that Mephibosheth inherited is now yours. It's good to be the king. Um, you, you can hand out parcels of ground that belong to other people, and that's you could do that because you're the king. So this is an instant of blessing. In the next uh, happening, which he comes to Bahurim now, so he's just crested the top of the Mount of Olives. He's just starting now, the entourage is starting their downward descent into uh, uh, into the, the uh, Jordan River Valley. And... I believe that the narrator gives us this town Bahurim here because he wants us to think in our mind's eye. I, I now have grown accustomed to kind of following the geography of this trip. Now David is descending into the Jordan River Valley and the landscape has changed from being green and lush to being rather arid and sandy. Now the desert will bloom like a rose, uh, if they receive uh, proper amounts of rainfall. But typically when it does happen, it goes away very quickly. And uh, when I took a bus ride from Jerusalem down to Jordan, then uh, down to the Dead Sea, to the Dead Sea Scroll Caves, uh, it's a very winding, tortuous route. And of course, it was a paved road in 1980. Imagine that, they had paved roads in 1980. But in this day, it would have been just a trail. And there's a man by the name of Shimei who is from uh, the tribe of Benjamin. He's from the house of Saul, uh, the Bible tells us. And uh, David is on, uh, on the trail going down the path, the road going down to the Jordan River Valley and up on the ridge uh, of these craggy hilltops comes this man, Shimei, who is cursing David. So this is an instant now, if we can get it in our context, the context of where we're at in the scripture, this is an instant of blessing and an instant of cursing. Now, Christy's talking about Grow to Go members, you know, using the word blessed. You know, how are you doing today? I almost don't ask them how they're doing today because I know what they're going to say. They're going to say, I'm blessed. And I just, I, there's part of me that wants to say, well, I'm blistered today. 
you know, just kind of counteract that because, uh, but they've been schooled in this notion that even if things aren't going well, that God is still in control, and so you can still say that you're blessed. Okay, I, I understand that. Theoretically, I understand it theologically. I don't always practice that. that. That's not always my practice, though, because some days there's not so, there's more cursing than there is blessing. And I'm not talking about mouth cursing here, but th- there are things that go wrong some days, and those things that go wrong sometimes outweigh or overwhelm uh, what we see as the, the good things of the day. But for a child of God, and here, here's the, one of the lessons we can learn is that the, first God gives us blessings, but that does not mean that because we have a blessed life that, that we don't undergo or experience um, curses. So we'll start... Uh, with this, so how, how do how do we position ourselves in the text? Of course, we believe that the text is authoritative for us. I, I know that some people sometimes um, they confuse. They say, "Well, you you Bible absolutists, you fundamentalists are just just as bad as the um, um, Muslims, the is, Islamic jihadists who are dedicated to the text of the Quran." It's a little bit different because. Uh, Muslim people would view the text of the Quran as the incarnation of divinity. We do not view the Bible as the incarnation of divinity. We we view the Bible as inspired. We believe that the Bible is um, infallible. But we we don't view the Bible as the incarnation of divinity. Jesus, for Christians, is the incarnation of divinity. And so that Muslims, if you want to strike a comparison, Muslims are as devoted, in that sense, to the text of the Quran as we would be to uh, the notion of Jesus Christ uh, being the Son of God. So it's a little bit different, but we we look at this uh, because... Uh, you know, you may have people that come to church and they say, well, why are we reading a script? Why are we reading this story at all? What does this have to do with us? Well, Christians believe, uh, at least Christians who have a high view of Christ and a high view of scriptures, Christians believe that the text is authoritative. Now, to what degree it is authoritative in your life? Um, unfortunately, as much as I preach and teach, that's up to you to what degree it is authoritative in your life, but nonetheless, if you're going to uh, be a part of this church, you're you're going to hear uh, we're going to be referencing scripture a lot, and the reason why is that it's not just a dry, dusty, ancient text; it actually has something to teach us for today. So, here's my thoughts. As the instances with Mephibosheth's betrayal, which we have in the first four verses of 16, and Shimei's cursing in 5 through 12 of the same chapter prove David had a right to be suspicious of people's loyalties. And of course, we see this. Uh, we see this in chapter 15, where David is kind of standing to the side as the people pass by and he's questioning them. He questions. Um, 
as we saw in verse 18 of chapter 15, he, he questions uh, the Gittites. And he, in fact, tells them, he says, uh, you guys are from Gath. You just showed up the other day. You, you guys go back to Jerusalem. And Ittai uh, answered the king and again declared his loyalty, his allegiance to David. And of course, this is very important. If you're being chased by the enemy, that you don't have a fifth column developing among uh, your own people. So we might say, well, David, why are you so suspicious in chapter 15? Well, it becomes apparent in chapter 16 why David is suspicious of people's alleged loyalties to him because of what happens not only with Mephibosheth and his betrayal, but also uh, the cursing of Shimei. Now look in uh, chapter 16 in verses 7 through 8. Jim read this vigorously, much uh, the way that Shimei would have sounded. Uh, Look in chapter 16, verse 7. Shimei said, is he cursed? Now, you know that I like Andy Griffith. Every so often, there descended out of the hills into Mayberry a guy who liked to throw stones at glass windows, and his name was Ernest. Was it Ernestine or Ernest T? Ernest T. Bass. There we go. You can tell we have three devotees of the Andy Griffith show here. And Ernestine would show up every so often in town. Remember that one where he was trying to marry Miss Crump or something? And that was Andy's girlfriend, and Miss Crump was just devastated. She was beside herself with all that. I kind of see an Ernestine Bass-type person here. He's crazy because, as the text tells us, there is Abishai who sees this crazy guy. Here they are, they're walking down, and up on the ridge up there, just outlined, is this crazy rock-throwing Ernesty Bass, who's like, well, look at what he says. Look in verse 7. Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you, it said in a good South Carolina accent. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom, see, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. He's just crazy. Now, either he thought that he could outrun them, or the geography somehow prohibited them from easy access to him, because this was not something, yeah, David's in a bad spot here, but as Abishai um, says to David, you know, Let me go up there and lop this guy's head off. We don't have to put up with this. And we might be, we might consider that, you know, like, gee, things are bad enough without this megaphone up there just reminding us of the position that we're in. So Shimei's accusation, according to Robert Alter, is that David has come into dire straits. He's he's losing the throne displaced by his own son because of his own evil actions. It's like somebody getting up there, you got nobody. Remember when your mother would say that to you? You got nobody to blame but yourself. 
Nobody did this to you but you. And it's it's really doesn't help things right now. It's not the atmosphere that you want to inculcate when people are on the run, running for their lives. So the solution, it, it would seem, is the one that Abishai, the son of Zariah, verse 9, proposes. Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Well, yeah, let's do that. At least we won't have that to deal with. And to me, David's response is not only surprising, but it is a response that um, we need to take notice of. Listen to Alter again. This is one of the most astonishing turning points in this story that abounds in human surprises. The proud, canny, often implacable David here resigns himself to accepting the most stinging humiliation from a person he could easily have his man kill. Uh, Alter goes on and says, David's abasement is not, uh, that should be a, is not a disguise. He's not feigning humility here. What is his response? Well, look, verse 10, but the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? Now, David was a man of war. He knew how to kill people, had killed his share of people. But Abishai, the, the, the Zeruites, if we want to call them that, they were particularly vicious, and you'd have to go back in the text to find this. They had no qualms about lopping people's heads off. And David, even though he knows that sometimes that's, that's the only alternative that you have is to decimate the enemy, David really objects. He says, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he's cursing, now here he he proposes it as a possibility. If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say why you have done so? Now, this is kind of a, an, an odd predicament here. In other words, David raises the possibility that this man saying these bad things about him could actually be something authorized by God. Now that doesn't comport very easily with our notion of how a sane person should conduct themselves in civil society. No, and I'm not going to go there. That's for you to decide on Tuesday. So David again says, look in verse 11, said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite, remember Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. That's how. That's why we keep reading this text in Acts chapter 13, because the text in Acts chapter 13 is Paul's sermon, but it's based on, historical verities. Look at what David says. Behold, my own son seeks my life. That's Absalom. 
How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone? In other words, David is saying he's got a right to be upset. Leave him alone and let him curse. And now he does not propose it as a possibility. He just comes out and makes it as a plain statement. For the Lord has told him to. Now I guarantee you, if somebody stood up in this congregation right now and started cussing me out, we're in for a fight, folks. I I don't think that I'm going to stand here and say, well, Brother Jay, the Lord has told you to cuss me out. I don't think so. At least, if we consult the past history of this church, it has never happened. (laughs) This church does not have a history of where the people in the pew decide to take on the pastor in a service and cuss him out. How many know that to be true? Amen to that. And we, we think that all things should be done decently in order, and that's part of it. But so this is, this is again, counterintuitive. We don't expect David to run in chapter 15. And here in chapter 16, we don't expect him just to put up with this kind of riffraff, this kind of, uh, we expect him to turn the squelch up and turn the noise off. But David says, Here again, not presenting it as a possibility, but a plain statement for the Lord has told him to. Then it goes back to conjecture, verse 12. Let's look at the text. It may be, say that with me, it it may be, may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. See, it wasn't right, it was a wrong, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So it continues. David keeps making his way down to the Jordan River Valley, Shimei, Ernest T. Bass up on the ridge. You can see plumes of dust in the air, rocks being thrown down. Abishai, the son of Zariah, has got to put his shield up every so often as a, as a rock goes clunking off of it. He could, he could have just, like killing a rat, he could have just gone over there and and dispatched the man. So David's abasement altar says is not a disguise, but a real change in condition from which, however, he will emerge in more than one surprising way. The acceptance of humiliation is a kind of fatalism. Now this is why, if you've looked at the title on the bottom of the screen, the title is, Was David a Calvinist? Now, The short answer to that question is no, by virtue of the fact that Calvin was born in 1509 and died in 1564, and here we are at least around a 1,000 years before Christ. There's 2,500 years, a good 2,500 years that, that separate the two people. So in that sense, was David a Calvinist? The answer is no. He couldn't, he couldn't have been. But what... How David is reacting, we we will take the raisin cakes and the wine, right, from uh, Ziba. We will welcome that, and we will we will receive that. All the while testifying, well, God is watching over us; He's blessing us, even though we're in this awful predicament. God is providing for us, but we're not quite so prone 
when Ernest T. Bass starts throwing rocks at us and cussing us out, we're not quite so prone to say, well, this also comes from the hand of God. We're willing to accept those things that are obviously good, but we are not so willing to accept those things which to us, from our perspective, are obviously bad. How many are tracking with me here? David accepts both the... I was watching a little bit of that Western yesterday at lunch, the good, the bad, the ugly. David accepts both the good and the bad and the ugly. And it's a remarkable thing. It shows that for all of his faults, David, at least at this age of his life, probably in his mid-50s, has learned something from his mistakes. You know, it's one thing to make mistakes in life. Everybody's going to make mistakes in life. Everybody, most, most of the mistakes we make, make are recoverable mistakes. Every so often we make a mistake, which is a major life uh, trauma situation for us, and it requires massive adjustment on our parts to accommodate it. But the worst thing that can be said about a person is that you get to the end of your life and you haven't learned anything either from the blessings or the cursings. You just sailed through life oblivious to what maybe, what is the purpose of my life? What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? Did anybody give per, uh, permission to your parents to be born? Any, anybody remember that? In some prenatal state, there was a FedEx package delivered to you that said, please sign here, sign here. And then this will allow your parents to go ahead with all, well, the process of birth. No. We didn't give anybody, uh, we didn't give God permission for us to be born. We were born. And the Bible teaches that our, our birth had substantial purpose. In other words, it, it, it just wasn't, uh, nilly willy. Was that the singing group? No, that's, Nilly Vanilli. <laughs> okay, that was just a stray thought that came in there. Before I was formed in my mother's womb, God was aware of the substance of my existence. So to think that a person could live 70, 80 years of their life and not have a clue, either by the good things, the bad things, the good choices they made or the mistakes they made. The, the point of living is that when we get older here, we have a more, more mature David now, that you would learn some things about life. And this is one of the things that David has to teach us. If you're going to accept just on the other side of the worship spot on the top of Mount of Olives, if you're going to accept the raisin cakes and the wine, you are also going to have to accommodate, make room, adjust your life somehow to those things which are not so good. And don't get mad. Don't get angry. Don't get upset. Because it, may, it, it could be what David is saying is that God's hand is behind both events. Oh boy, it's quiet now, isn't it? 
So listen again to Alter. The acceptance of humiliation is a kind of fatalism. Now, Calvinism sometimes has been criticized for being fatalism, and it is not fatalism. Certainly isn't nihilism. But I don't believe it's fatalism either. If you believe that God is, and God is who he says he is, the, the God of the Bible, then you believe that everything has a seasoned purpose attached to it. That there are no, nothing that happens in this life somehow gets away from God. At one time, the house next door, Christy and I, we had four dogs. Some of you may remember that. We had Ellie the Dalmatian, help me with this. We had uh, Tyson the Rottweiler. We had Lucy um, the English Bulldog. And we had um, a pit bull. Her name was, uh, no, Saint was the, the last one. There was a pit bull before that. I can't remember, but four dogs. Well, in Bell Fountain neighbors, if you have a Rottweiler, you can't, you're not supposed to have a pit bull or a Rottweiler. But if you do have a dog outside, you're supposed to have it on a leash. How many know this to be the, the law of the land? Has your dog ever gotten away from you? I remember one time that Peggy was out here. She had parked on the side, Peggy Wright, and she had parked on the side, and Saint was out. How many remember Saint? He was a Christian dog. He was a pit bull but he had submitted his pit bull nature to the lordship of Jesus Christ in his life. And yes, he, he was a good Christian dog. He's buried right over there. There's a cross at Marx's grave. Those of you who want to go over and pay homage sometime today. Please, Jim, if you're driving the tractor, don't drive over. Well, Saint was out. And Peggy had come over, I don't know, maybe to pray or something. And Saint, if he didn't know you, he would assume that you needed chasing and barking at. And so Saint came across the lawn, up the hill, and Peggy is not in her car. It's locked. And Saint begins to chase Peggy around. Peggy begins to scream, and she opens the trunk. She has the keys in her hand to get a billy club she has in the trunk because she doesn't know that saint is a Christian dog. She thinks that saint is the embodiment of Satan at this point. Saint, Satan, you know, there's not much difference. Well, I intervened, but only to realize that while she's being chased, she kind of, she didn't really twist her ankle, but she just, you know. Gosh, it just brings it back. I'm just... Excuse me a minute. But in, in God's economy, no dogs get loose. Every dog in God's economy, in the, if we want to call it the created world, ends creatum, is chained. Now, how many know that if you get in the territory of a chained out dog, that opens up the possibility of getting hurt. How many know this to be true? Remember that uh, it was a while back where the, uh, uh, there was a compound for, I think it was orangutans or chimpanzee, and it was, they had a chain link fence, but one of the caretakers got, 
was on one side of the fence and the chimpanzee somehow got a hold of that person and basically just tore them apart. So if you get in, if you get in the bad, we'll just call it the bad guy. If you get in the bad guy, Ernest T. Bass, Shimei territory, the chances are, have been now heightened that you're going to get hurt. But as long as you know, it's like the cat across the street knows that the cat can tantalize that dog, but it, on the chain, but it, and walk right up to the point where that chainsaw, you know, we've seen this in cartoons where the dog goes running and the chain jerks him back and his eyes pop out. The cat keeps on walking. So you can't get hurt. Bad things happen to good people in God's created order. But there are no unchained dogs. This is what David's telling us. Abishai is like, I don't care if he's chained or not. I'm going to go over him. He's dead. Lop his head off. Take his head off. Don't even think twice about it. David says, no, if we stay out of range, it may be that this is this man's purpose in life, to make me think about what I have done. It's an interesting story, isn't it? He said, wow, I just thought this was, you know, something good happened to David, something bad happened to David. Look at this again. The acceptance of humiliation is a kind of fatalism. If someone commits such a sacrilegious act against the man who is God's anointed king, it must be because God has decreed it. Now, there are two words there in that passage, fatalism, and now the word decree that makes me ask this question, was David a Calvinist? Was David... A Calvinist. And I'll explain to you why that question comes up. Listen to Alter again. The, the, the guilt, and we'll be done here in, in just a few minutes. The guilt is coupled with despair. As David goes on to say, when my own son is trying to kill me, what difference could it make if this man of a rival tribe, who at least has political grounds for hostility toward me, should revile me? Now, last week in a common prayer book that we've been covering on Wednesday nights, goes along with the class on Wednesday nights, it has scripture passages for us to read every day. November 1st, which I think was this week. Uh, November 1st, I think was Tuesday. Uh, November 1st, the gospel passage was Matthew 5, 1 through 12. When I read Matthew 5, 1 through 12, now that might ring a bell with you. Those are the Beatitudes of Jesus. When I read that, I immediately begin to think of David and where he is at right now. In other words, David isn't, David could say, hey, I'm still the king, and it's good to be the king. Abishai, go over there, take his head off. We're not putting up with this. But David takes another tack, another approach completely, and it reminds me of the attitude that you and I as Christians should have. Just, it would do us good to look at this, just, uh, just, just flip over there with me, Matthew chapter 5. And, and we won't linger on the passage, but we're going to read through it. And you'll, you'll get a, the taste of it. Here's the Beatitudes. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. How many would say that David right now is poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. How many could say that David at this point is being merciful? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. He's not quite there yet, but he's in the process of purification. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the, what? Peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are, and here is really, the son of David is really, could really be calling on this passage to to substantiate this next statement. Blessed are those who are persecuted. You see that? For righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. This is counterintuitive. No wonder the dispensationalist said nobody could possibly live up to this, so this must be for the kingdom age. This is not for Christians now in the church age. Imagine that. It take a whole swath of scripture, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, just cut it out of the Bible, say that's not for us. How convenient. I don't have to rejoice when I'm being persecuted. I can exact revenge. Uh, I don't think so. Look, look, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Do we get that? They persecuted the prophets. Paul said, have I become your enemy because I've told you the truth? And the answer was yes. We don't like the truth. So this is is how Lexio Divina works in a Christian's life, where you can hear a sermon on Sunday, read a passage on Tuesday, and make the connection. Oh, You know, let me reread these blessed are. Blessed are you when you kill all your enemies. Blessed are you when you come out on top. Blessed are you when you win. It sounds like I should start an inspirational series of talks at a hotel somewhere. You too can walk on hot coals. No, no, it's completely opposite. You're blessed, Jesus says, when you lose and you know you're losing because you recognize that in a point of loss, it might be the best thing that could ever happen to you. Remember Jesus said, the man who finds his life will what? Lose it. But the man who loses his life for my sake in the kingdom will find it. Now, we don't often view loss in this way. We, as Americans in particular, we view loss in one dimension. It can only be bad. And we have a whole substrata in our culture, the permanent underclass who, who have picked up on, on this idea of making America great again, make America great again in this one-dimensional sense. That's the only, that's as close as I'm going to get to it. Now, 
I'll become more vile, kind of Ernest T. Bass-like, and take more, more of a chance of... Now, now, you know that I'm a Calvinist. You also know, I hope you know, that you don't have to be a Calvinist to, to come to this church, to be a member of this church. I, I, I purposely left our statement of faith very Pentecostal, small p Pentecostal, on our website. That hasn't changed. Because, you know, I, I'm not God. I could be wrong. But you know personally that I'm a Calvinist. The reason I'm a Calvinist is because if you just confine yourself to the text of the Bible, it is the explanation that makes the most sense of the most texts of Scripture. Even people who don't, who are not Calvinists, who are Arminians and rabid Arminians, they will often say, well, when it comes to the interpretation of Scripture, Calvinism as a system, it's difficult to, to beat it. Now, there are other reasons not to be a Calvinist, extra-biblical reasons. There are philosophical objections to it. And I understand that. But if you're just going to confine yourself to the text, Calvinism is the best explanation if you're trying to take all the texts and reconcile themselves into a coherent Theological system. Uh, I, I've told people this before. I'm not a Calvinist because I want to be. I'm a Calvinist because I'm compelled to be. In fact, nobody wants to be a Calvinist. I would rather be a universalist. I would just rather say, you know what? My, my hermeneutic of understanding scripture that God is love and that we're all okay. You're okay. I'm okay. Everything's okay. Fine, go do what you want to do, and we'll see you on You know what? When you go to a funeral, nobody goes to hell anymore. Everybody's looking down from heaven. Have you noticed that about funerals lately? Not that we should go to a funeral and expect somebody to say, Christy, Christy was talking to somebody the other day. I think it was at, at the Lewis's, was it, was it uh, uh, Kyle's birthday party? And, and somebody came up to Christy and said, Oh, I, I kind of... You look familiar. And so Christy was telling him, you know, about the church and all. And he said, oh, yeah, you're the church that really does those funerals so well. And I was kidding to Christy. I said, you know, I'm going to have some cards printed. that Funerals on demand. When, when they should really be sent to hell, we'll put them in heaven. And of course, nobody wants to go to a funeral and say, well, it's too bad this person is in hell right now. No, we, we, nobody would say that anymore. Not, I, I mean, we have we have a little bit more couthness <laughs> than that, right? So I, I, that supports the idea that nobody wants to be a cow. I'd rather be a universalist. I'd just rather say, you can be you, and I can be me, and we'll just tolerate each other. We'll all be happy, and we'll all get along. How many know that that's not? The story of the human race. Somebody says, well, we need men of action right now. We don't mean, need somebody on my Facebook page said, we need men of action right now. We don't need people that just sit home reading their books. And I'm thinking about, to my, I, I, I'm like, was that directed at me? It would be very hard to have a war if everyone is, was at home reading their books. In fact, it would be impossible. I'm I'm a, simply a book book drunkard. I, I admit. 
So I'm not a Calvinist because I, I, I get some kind of perverse pleasure out of it, like, oh, I'm elect and you're not. I don't know. I have a hard time even knowing if I'm elect. Never mind passing judgment on you, definitively saying, oh, yes, I know that Amy Smith, she's non-elect. She, she has been created just so God can bring down his wrath upon her. Yes, you all know Amy Smith. She deserves that wrath. She doesn't deserve it any more than I do. So, so we have these philosophical objections, but if you really study the Bible, oh, that's the problem, is that we have to read the Bible, study the Bible, and understand it. Somebody says, well, if that's the kind of God, the Bible, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'd just rather be ignorant. Really? Okay. So here, I'll, I'll get even more vile. Just give me two more minutes. Here's the Westminster Confession, because I can't leave you here, right? i got to bring you back. I've got to bring you back to we're all going to, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will. And you know I can do that. You know I can inspire. You know I have my Osteen moments. Here's the Westminster Confession. Chapter 3. The first paragraph, God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Now, if you just read the underlined words, read it with me. God did ordain whatsoever comes to pass. There's been lots of crap in my life. What? Everything good and bad has been ordained by God. What what does it say again? Read it with me. God did ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Now, there's a caveat here. There's a buyer beware. There are three caveats, in fact, in the next sentence. So we're not going to finish this today. I know, you'd like to stay another hour while I give you the answer, how to work all this out, wouldn't you? Oh, don't overwhelm me with with positive adulation. Whatsoever whatsoever comes up, we, we like the word whatever, right? When something bad happens to us, somebody's arguing with us, what do we say? Read the hand, whatever, like as though, you know, the dog just got off the leash and messed things up. You know, spit happens. Oh, you're awake now. You know, stuff happens. There's no explanation for it. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches Romans 8.28. It is the most favorite verse of Scripture for Christians in the Bible. I don't think they understand it. And we know. See? So some people know, some people don't. I'm not, I'm not preaching a new kind of Christian Gnosticism. I'm just saying there are some things you have to come to understand. And we know that 
What's the next word? What? All things work together for most things. The things I like. I like the raisin cakes and wine. I don't like Ernest T. Bass throwing rocks at me. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to whose purpose? His purpose. Not my purpose. His purpose. Uh, Now look at this. I just want you to look at this. This You say, well, you're making a mountain out of a molehill here. Really? Okay, look in the next chapter, and then we're done. We're going to receive, and then we're going to recover so that we can come back and eat Paul's chili. Look at, in, the, in the next chapter. We'll, we'll close with this. 2 Samuel chapter 17. Remember Ahithophel? Ahithophel was... Bathsheba's grandfather, back in chapter 15, a messenger told David, Ahithophel has betrayed you. He's against you. He's with Absalom. Apparently, there was some unfinished business there. David didn't like what happened with Bathsheba and the death of Uriah, his first son-in-law. Ahithophel becomes Absalom's chief advisor. But look, I'm, I'm lifting this verse of Scripture out of context. I just want, to, want you to see Second Samuel chapter 17, verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. We're getting ahead of ourselves here because we don't know really yet how the story turns out. We don't know whether Absalom's going to become the king or not. We're getting our, ahead of ourselves here. But I want you to see that word ordained in, in the scripture. The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of, of Ahithophel. What does this say? God did ordain Whatsoever comes to pass. Now that is going to take a revolution in your worldview to believe that. Because most of us believe that God was good and fair in our lives with the good stuff, but he was unjust and unfair with the bad stuff. And if the stuff that happens to us is bad enough, we will find ourselves in an unreconciled state with God. I can't believe God allowed this to happen. How can you believe in a God that would let that happen? That's the question, the question of human existence. How can I resolve myself, reconcile myself to the crap that happens? I don't have a problem reconciling myself with the good stuff that happens. How do I reconcile myself, still believe in God, maintain my faith, and believe that God ordained whatsoever came to pass in my life? Yeah. You know what it takes? It takes grace first and, first and faith second. 
Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by. Does hearing just come, you know, that, well, today I think I'll go to church and listen. No. Hearing comes by the constant pitter-pat, the constant rainfall of the Word of God in my life. For more information on Covenant Community Church, visit us online at www.covcomchu.org. That's covcomchu.org. Or give us a call at 314-869-4367. At Covenant Community Church, it's our prayer that the preceding message has served to glorify Christ and further God's work in your life.